Life is hard and everyone has to deal with some sort of adversity in this life that we are given. But the only way that we can overcome the adversity and hardships that life presents us is by having the mentality even to be able to overcome it. The battle itself can be something physical, it can be something spiritual, an emotional struggle, or most likely a combination of all three. But the way that we overcome hard times and continue to grind, even when the world is weighing us down, is by having the mentality and the mindset to overcome the challenges. This is exactly why I reached out to my guest today and wanted to have him on the Rise Kelly podcast. My guest today is Matt Branch. Matt is a former LSU Tiger football player, a husband, a father, an avid hunter, and a great man of faith. Just over a year and a half ago, Matt faced a tragic hunting accident that nearly cost him his life and has dramatically changed his life today. I don't want to give too many details away because I want you guys to be able to hear his story from his mouth, but Matt is no stranger to adversity and he is turning his experience into a platform in order to advocate for disabled outdoorsmen, hunting and gun safety, and prioritizing what really matters in life. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy today's episode with him. But before we get to that, I just want to ask you guys to reach out to me on social media, on Instagram, which is where I'm most active. You guys can find me at the Instagram handle at Rise Kill Eat, just like the name of this show, all all together at Rise Kill Eat. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash RKE, as in Rise Kill Eat, RKE Afield. So that's facebook.com slash RKE Afield. And then on Twitter, you can find me at the handle at RKE Afield. All right, so reach out to me on there. I love hearing you guys from all over the country and really all over the world. I mean, we got we have some international listeners, and I really appreciate you guys checking out the Rise Elite podcast because, I mean, it's it's crazy that me sitting here in my bedroom recording these podcast episodes in Kentucky is able to reach people's ears from Australia, Canada, South Africa, Europe. I mean, it, all over the place. So thank you guys for taking some time and listening to the Rise Elite podcast. It's just crazy. And also thank you guys for listening from all over the country. I mean, we have, I think last time I checked, we have almost all 50 states covered as far as uh, downloads and listeners go. So it's pretty incredible that this podcast is being able to reach so many people from all over the place. So thank you guys for that, because I mean, it, it really, it's really not possible without you guys. So I, I do certainly appreciate it. So reach out to me on social media from there, and I'd be I'd love to to discuss with you and connect with you on there. So one quick thing before we get to our episode, I want to also ask that you guys that if you guys find any kind of value from the Rise Elite podcast, and especially from your from today's episode, which I think you will because it's an incredibly inspiring episode today, that you guys leave a rating and review on the podcast platform that you're listening to. I know most of you guys are probably listening on the Apple podcast platform. They have a really easy setup that you guys can leave ratings and reviews on there. So if you just scroll down, go to the Rise, Kill, Eat title page whenever you click on the on the shows. Just scroll down. It'll give you an option of five stars. So just give me a rating on how many stars you think the show deserves. And then just leave a quick review, and that would be greatly appreciated. Those ratings and reviews, they go a, a long way in being able to organically grow this podcast and get it into people's ears even more than what it already is. And any help that you guys can give as far as the ratings and reviews go, then that would be certainly greatly appreciated, and it would be awesome to to see those numbers climb. So I appreciate you guys that have already done that, and I appreciate the ones that have, are planning on doing that. So thank you guys for doing that. All right. That's it as far as announcements go, because I wanted to go ahead and dive into this conversation that I had with Matt. 
So again, Matt Branch, he is a former LSU football player. He's now a husband. He's a father with another one on the way. He's an avid hunter, and he's a great man of faith. And it's this episode really inspired me personally. Uh, and it, he's just got a great mentality on prioritizing the things that really matter in life. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into my talk today with Matt Branch. Enjoy the show. I've got Matt Branch here. So Matt has a very interesting story. I've been doing a lot of research on on Matt's story over the past, really past couple of days, just kind of get ready for this. And man, your story is just uh, pretty incredible. And of course, we're going to get into that. And, and I appreciate you being on the Rice Elite podcast. If you want to just kind of give a synopsis, I guess, of of who you are and go for it. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. I appreciate it. You know, I was Lucky to get this squeezed in my schedule right now, you know, with all the coronavirus stuff going on. I've just been just super busy, you know. I've just kind of been sitting at the house, just watching TV and stuff. So, you know, I was love, lucky to be able to get on the show today. So, I'm just kidding. You know, it's kind of a joke. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, so I'm, I'm married with uh, my wife, Leanna. We live here in Monroe, Louisiana, uh, with our two-year-old son. Uh, his name's Barrett. And um, my wife is also 31 weeks pregnant right now. So we're expecting our second child here in about another almost two months from now. So uh, that's awesome. we got a lot of stuff. Yeah, man, we got a lot of stuff going on and, and all the craziness in the world right now. So uh, we're just trying to make it every day. But I guess, like I said, I'm from Monroe, Louisiana, which is basically home to nothing but churches and rednecks that's about it we, we love our hunting fishing here in north louisiana uh, i work for corteva agriscience which is an agricultural manufacturer so what we do is we produce products for farmers to use uh to grow their crops and um i work as a territory manager for them so my office is actually out of my house and um, um i travel in a geography within the state of Louisiana and just kind of call on customers and distributors and represent the products that we sell and manufacture. Um, and I guess one of the good things about working in the agriculture industry, especially for your listeners out there, is, you know, the thing about ag is during the winter months, which is hunting season, you know, we're not really doing anything. Um, we're just kind of sitting around making plans for the next uh, growing season. So you get plenty of time to hunt and fish, or at least hunt in the winter. Um, they've been fishing so much in the spring and summer, we're pretty busy then. But um, for any guys out there that may be looking for a career change or looking for a career and you love hunting, you know, agriculture is definitely one to look at. I recommend it for sure. Um, you know, also, I guess the number one thing that we're known for here in Monroe, Louisiana, is Duck Dynasty, you know, the Robertsons, everybody knows who they are. Of course, are. everybody knows um, who they are. They kinda, <laughs> yeah, they kind of put us on the map here at Monroe. It was crazy, like when the show was at its peak. You know, they had a little restaurant in West Monroe, 
not ignorant once or twice. You know, to us here in Monroe, like the Robertsons really aren't that big a deal. I mean, we've known about them for 20, 30 years now. You right. know, we've known who Phil was. He's, he's gone around to different churches and spoken at events and things. I've watched it several times as a kid. And then I guess when the show took off, you know, they just blew up nationwide. You know, people were freaking out. But you could go to that little restaurant over in West Monroe. And I mean, there's no telling what kind of license plates you would see. I mean, there'd be people from Wisconsin, Maine, Oklahoma, you know, all on the East Coast, the West Coast. And I'm just sitting around scratching my head like, why are all these people here? And then it dawns on me, they're just here because of Duck Dynasty. Like, there's nothing to do in Monroe, Louisiana. Like I said, we're just a bunch of churches and rednecks. That's about it. But we had a spike in Florida after the Duck Dynasty premiered, so it's pretty cool. But, uh, but that's just about what everybody says when I tell them where I'm from. They're like, oh, isn't that where the Rockstons live? I'm like, yep, it's what we're famous for, so. Uh, admittedly, I have to uh, admit that we have planned and we have looked into coming down into Monroe, Louisiana, just to kind of check out all the the Duck Commander and the Buck Commander, all the Duck Dynasty stuff. So and yeah. I live in Kentucky, on the eastern side of Kentucky. So that's a, I mean that's a good thirteen, fourteen hour trip for us. So <laughs> admittedly, I have to I have to admit that I'm in that crowd that uh, I guess would be a uh, kind of kind of associated with that. So. <laughs> haven't they uh i know they've uh kind of included like a little zoo and that kind of stuff just to give some people you know some other things to do once they do come down for that and uh has it grown you know over the past six or seven years or is it just pretty much the same since then it's basically what's happened was the zoo started off it was pretty you know decent zoo back in the 90s when I was a kid and then in the 2000s it kind of like took a turn for the worse and they had to shut some of the stuff down but since Duck Dynasty they kind of opened some of the stuff back up so yeah I'd say we're, we're trying uh, in Monroe but you know things just happen a little bit slower here gotcha gotcha I guess every every town has their uh their rate of growth if if so to speak I guess and then you know, of course, having that, having the family there, you know, having the Robertson family there, of course, just you know, like you said, just kind of put Monroe on the map because I, I before Duck Dynasty kind of came out, I knew I had heard of you know like Louisiana Monroe, the university, but even then, even that, I didn't know where that was or anything. And uh, of course, you know, once Duck Dynasty took off, and that's when that's when Monroe became on the map. So that's that's pretty yeah, cool though. I guess that's what it takes then. You just gotta have have somebody there. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of biased this year since I went to yeah. school there, played there, so uh, I try to you know give the ULM fans a hard time when I can. <laughs> and rightfully so, because that's what I wanted to get into next year was. So you were uh, of course a high school football player, you know, um, you know. Like I said, I was doing a little bit of research and saw some of your accolades that you were able to achieve in high school, and that, of course, translates to some opportunities at the college level. So what's it like, you know, of course, being able to play for, for a team like LSU who is known, you know, nationwide for, for football and being on a team that, you know, especially this last season, you know, being associated, having the same name as the teams this last season that just just really is is known for football. Yeah, man, it's, um, 
honestly, you know, when I was in high school, early in my, you know, younger high school years, freshman, sophomore, I, I really didn't ever think that I would have the opportunity to play at the college level. You know, I was I was always pretty tall. Like I'm six foot six now. And um, but I was I was pretty goofy, I guess, in junior high and high school years. It took a, it took a little while for my athleticism to catch up to my size. But you know, after my junior year uh, in high school, it all kind of became real to me, and I started to get you know college scholarship offers. And you know, I had I had a, a pile of, of offers from uh, different colleges all throughout the South at SEC. Um, you know, I could have gone where I wanted. And LSU called me up and gave me the offer. I was like, man, this is where I'm going because you know I went to games as a kid I grew up you know cheering on the Tigers you know I got to watch them um you know when Nick Saban got there and kind of turned the program around in the early 2000s you know I was a kid watching that and I just dreamed that you know one day I could play for them and you know I never thought my dream would come true and then you know you never know what's going to happen the next day you know we wake up you never know what's coming your way and then all of a sudden, here's one of my biggest childhood dreams, and my it's sitting in my lap. And uh, of course, I signed the dotted line, and I gave them, you know, four years of my life. Um, you know, I learned a ton about life while I was down there. Uh, I played in like 28 games, another um, two years. Uh, I was never a full time starter, um, but I did play a pretty good bit. Uh, throughout my three eligible seasons that I had, um, you know, my career was kind of cut short. I had a lot of injuries, um, several concussions over the years, and eventually that just kind of took a toll on my body, and I just decided that, you know, I had a long way to go for the rest of my life. And, you know, mm-hmm. football, as is, is, much as I enjoyed it and loved it, it was not going to be there for me forever. You know, I had to kind of take care of myself and move away from it. But, um... But no, kind of answering back to your question, you know, playing for LSU is just unbelievable, man. Like, they have the spotlight on them every year. You know, they're, they're typically always a contender, you know, for the national championship. And, you know, we had some really good teams when I played there. Um, 2017, I won the national championship. That was my senior year in high school. And as a recruit, they give you tickets to every home game. So I basically went to every single home game during the 2007 season. Um, got to go in the locker rooms after the game and stuff. I mean, it was awesome. And I, I witnessed it all for up close and personal. And then, um, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, we had some pretty good years. Um, no national championship runs. And then my last year that I played in 2011, uh, we went back to the national championship. Undefeated regular season, SEC champions. And then the bowl committee dropped a nuke bomb on us mm-hmm. and made us rematch Alabama in the national championship after we had already beat them, which, you know, to this day, all the players on that team are very bitter about that decision by the committee. Um, and, of course, most people know the story that are football fans. You know, they ended up beating us in the national championship that year. Yeah. And um, we finished the season 13-1. and one. And it felt like we didn't win a game. You know, it was it was crazy, you know, just how heartbreaking it is to go all the way through the season undefeated and QC champions, get to the biggest game of your life, and then lose. I mean, I, I, we could have just not won a game that year, and I think we, we would have been able to stomach that a little bit better. But, um, 
anyway, that's in the past, and I'm trying not to dwell on that too much anymore. You can kind of maybe tell them a little better about it still. But um, I hate Alabama. I'll just be clear for any Alabama fans out there. I'm not. I am not a fan of of uh, the roll tide or crimson tide. Oh man, yeah, and it's hard to beat, you know, especially a team of you know that caliber in one season. I mean, it's going to be it's got to be difficult to beat, you know, beat them twice. And I remember yeah. that, and I was uh I was in college at the time whenever that was in 2011. And I remember watching that game, and man, it was that was such a such a crazy game, such a crazy season for a lot of SEC teams. And the thing about you know the yep. SEC, I always love you know SEC football. You know, SEC is it's really known for its football because of teams like LSU and because of teams like Alabama and even Florida at certain times. And um, there's all these different teams in the SEC that are able to kind of compete with each other. And I think you see that, you know, whenever you look at these high caliber bowl games and national championships over the past, I don't know, 10 to 15 years, there's a lot of SEC teams thrown in there. You know, LSU, Alabama, Florida. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of different different ones in there that – that are uh, competing every year, like you mentioned with LSU. But I mean, I think it's just kind of the, kind of the the nature of the nature of the beast, and and it's just it's whenever you have those kind of the teams and they're constantly you know playing each other throughout the year, and then they meet again in the championship. I mean, I can't imagine you know how difficult and how how tricky that's going to be, and I I can understand your your bitterness from from that perspective for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's. Uh, you know, it's a lifestyle down here in the South, man. The SEC is dominant in college football. I think any everybody would agree with that. No matter if you're a Big Ten fan or you know, pack conference or actual teams out there anymore, I don't know. So I, I do have to give my 2019 Tigers credit, man. They are arguably the best college football team to ever do it. Um, you know, it was it was super fun to watch them play this year. I did get to go to one of the games, one of the home games. I went to the Florida game, uh, got on the field for, you know, warm-ups and stuff, and watched them up close and personal. But, um, you know, it kind, of, it kind of put me at ease around our 2011-2012 season, um, you know, watching them dominate the college football like they did this year. Um, and it, it also kind of brought me a little bit of jealousy, you know. I, I feel like we should have had that same thing that they had this year, but uh, we didn't get to get it. But anyway, hats off to those guys. They had a heck of a season. Yeah, I really enjoyed watching them this year. Uh, I mean, of course, Joe Burrows, I mean, he, he is a absolute maniac in, at the cornerback position. But, I mean, just really the whole team. I mean, of course, Burrows got a lot of the, the uh, you know, notoriety because of – you know, being the quarterback and being the leader on the offense. But, I mean, really when you watch the whole team, watch all 11 guys out there, I mean, they it was like a watching a machine. Like it was it was crazy how efficient the offense was and how efficient the defense was. And, you know, I think a lot of that showed in that national championship, especially, you know, in that second half when they just kind of just went crazy. And it was, it was, I really enjoyed watching it. And uh, Burroughs, he's actually ended up at Cincinnati, which is right up the road for me here. So, that's pretty cool that, you know, he's going to have that opportunity to to go on and probably end up making a difference in the in the AFC North, which I'm a Steelers fan, so that's going to be a, a little bit of an issue as far as <laughs> as far as that goes. But hopefully the Steelers will have a better year this year. But, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. That, that's awesome. I want to kind of yeah. go ahead and jump into uh, 
the, your hunting a little bit. I mean, of course you're a big duck hunter. I mean, I think, um, like you were saying down in Monroe, Louisiana, I mean, that's what you, that's what you got to do. So, so being a, being a duck hunter and, um, you know, being a hunter in general, where did all that kind of start for you? You know, how there's a lot of people have those, you know, those grandpa stories where grandpa took them out and dad kind of took them out with me. My dad, he got me introduced, uh, with whitetail hunting whenever I was a teenager. So what's that kind of look like for you as far as your, your, the start of your hunting goes? Yeah. So my, my story is pretty traditional, yeah. but it does have a slight twist in it. But, um, so I started out hunting at a very young age with my dad and, um, he, uh, he got me introduced to it. He was, I watched him go for, you know, probably six, seven years before he let me come with him. And, uh, you know, I was just itching to go with him. And, um, immediately it was something I knew that I was going to continue doing, you know, for the rest of my life. And it, it took me a couple of years. I started off white tail hunting, uh, to be clear about that. Yeah. Um, it took me a couple of years to actually, you know, be successful in, in harvesting a deer. Um, and, and it wasn't that I didn't get shots or opportunities. It was that I didn't make the shots or opportunities. I put it that way. We, uh, we had a little bit of trouble. Um, I couldn't really quite get down the, um, the accuracy part of it at a young age, but soon I got over that. And, um, then now, I mean, I can shoot a rifle, shoot a bow pretty well. But, um, so I grew up hunting and my whole family did, and it was something that, you know, I look forward to every year and getting to spend time at the camp with the family and, you know, everybody coming back and telling their stories, what they saw and seeing if somebody got one. And, you know, it was, it was fun as a kid growing up, but I guess when I got a little bit older, like high school, I kind of started to focus more on other things, uh, you know, sports girls you know stuff right. like that and <laughs> the I, kind usual. Of, uh, I kind of like didn't i didn't necessarily like fall out of love with hunting i still had something there for it but um it wasn't like my number one thing at that point in my life and then fast forward to college we already discussed my time at lsu yeah. well hunting season also aligns perfectly with football season and when i was playing football at lsu i got no time to come home and sit in a deer stand and it ate me alive you know it's crazy how when something's taken away from you that's when you learn to truly appreciate it mm-hmm. um and that's exactly what happened to me and that passion and fire for hunting just kind of struck back up in me when i was in college and every chance we had like a even a two three day break or whatever it might have been you know i was getting home and trying to get up in a tree stand or getting a duck blind if i could and, um, you know, that just kind of started my love affair for hunting all over again. And then fast forward to after graduating college, I took a job in the agricultural industry and already explained, you know, how the ag industry and hunting kind of go hand in hand with the timing of the seasons. And, um, you know, I just kind of kept pursuing it. And it was something that, you know, I really enjoyed. And I started to have a lot of success, you know, I was uh, my family has some property um, about 30 minutes from where I live in Monroe, and um, you know we had been we've been managing the white tail herd for many many years, and um, you know that was starting to finally pay off for us. And then I seemed to be the one that had all the luck in the family. You know I was I was killing the big mature deer that everybody was getting on camera, and uh, you know after I killed the first one that everybody saw on camera, they were like, yeah, whatever, that was just luck. 
And then I killed the second one the next year. And everybody was like, all right, you, know, you got lucky twice, whatever. And then I killed one the third year. And they were like, all right, what are you doing that we're not doing? You know, like, what's going on here? Then I killed a fourth one. And then they were like, all right, whatever. You're the king of the island. That's what we call our, our place, the island over there. They're like, you're the king of the island. You know, we can't talk crap to you anymore or whatever. We're going to have to start listening to you now. So, um... Yeah, I've, I've seen some success um, while out hunting. It's been a lot of fun for me. But um, that, that's kind of how I got my start. You know, it started off young, and then my passion exploded in college, and now here I am today. Yeah, so, yeah, we discussed, you know, how, you know, your falls and really winter, you know, being a national, potential national championship contender for, especially that last year. I mean, that's, that is, that is, that falls right in, you know, hunting season and, you know, especially kind of like the start of the ducks, duck hunting season, which I guess down in yeah. Louisiana, you really have like, I guess, multiple months of good duck hunting. Am I, am I right there? Yeah, no, you're right. We probably have, you know, like mid November to the end of January. Yeah. Um, but you know, school starts back for most colleges like mid January. So the end of, you know, the last couple weeks of January, you're scratched. And then, you know, our games, we typically played in those late bowl games. And, you know, we were playing till you know, the second week in January. So we really only had about four or five days there on most years that I could actually come home and enjoy it a little bit. But, um, yeah, and I wasn't the only one. You know, there were other guys on the team, too, that, that had the same feelings that I had for hunting and stuff. So, at least I, I didn't have to suffer alone. I had some others there to kind of comfort me when I was really depressed about it. <laughs> you guys could uh, kind of throw throw around some ideas on what you wanted to do once you once your season was over with. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We'd sit around and watch hunting videos and talk about our sorrows. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. here, uh, recently, so just kind of jump ahead a little bit. So, you know, I, I really appreciate sharing that story with, uh, you know, how you kind of got into hunting and, you know, I think those, those family stories, you know, the ones where, uh, you know, dad takes you out, grandpa takes you out, maybe an uncle or something, take you out and kind of, kind of show you the ways everything works. I, I love those stories. And like, like I said, that's kind of how, how I got into it as well, you know, as a teenager and I appreciate you sharing that, but moving, uh, moving ahead here. So this is a, this is of course a big, huge reason why I wanted to have you on here was to discuss your, your accident. So kind of, you know, kind of set up how, how all that kind of went down and, you know, just kind of, I, I, I really like to hear this from your perspective just because like I said, I, I've watched all kinds of, videos that you've done with like different, um, you know, news stations and different things, uh, just kind of prepare for this and just to hear it from you is just going to be, I think it's going to be really, really interesting. Yeah. So, uh, buckle your seatbelt. This is a, it's a crazy <laughs> story. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, most days I wake up, I'm like, did this really happen to me? You know, it's like, it's like one of those things in life that you just never get over. You yeah. know, you're just going to, it's going to be there with you forever. And it's there with me forever, you know, we'll get into that. But, um, it's, uh, it's a crazy story and, uh, I'm just going to kind of get kicked off. It'll take me a few minutes to kind of go over everything. But, um, so anyway, on, uh, December the 28th in 2018, so it's been roughly a year and a half, a little bit over a year and a half ago, um, my heart 
you know, quit beating for 45 minutes that day. Um, you know, me, my cousin, and uh, my brother, and we had two of our friends. We were over at uh, Eagle Lake, Mississippi, which is about 30 minutes north of Vicksburg, Mississippi. My family has a farm over there uh, that they've been farming for 20-something years, and, and that's one of the places that I grew up hunting. And uh, there's, it's right on Mississippi River, so there's, there's tons of deer over there. I mean, anybody familiar with you know, the amount of deer on the Mississippi River and, and big deer at that. You know, there's tons of hunting clubs up and down the river, but, you know, this is right there in the middle of all that. And um, it's a great place for deer hunting and duck hunting. But um, we were over there, kind of, it was a normal hunt for us, you know. We were just kind of, uh, kind of made a routine every year to kind of go over there and, and you know, squeeze in a duck hunt about this time of year after Christmas, between New Year, something like that. And this was just, one of those days, you know, I've done it hundreds of times in my life, it feels like, but, um, anyway, we were packing up our gear, kind of picking up decoys, that kind of stuff, finishing up the duck hunt, and, uh, I walked over to the Polaris Ranger, and I laid my shotgun down into the bed of it, well, we were getting ready to leave a few minutes later, and, um, I was standing around kind of on the passenger side of the Ranger, well, we had a hunting dog with us. A hunting dog leaped up into the back of the ranger, and then a split second later, a 12-gauge, three-inch magnum fired from my gun mm-hmm. went through the bed of the ranger and struck me point-blank in the top of my left eye. Um, you know, at first, we all didn't know or just couldn't believe you know, what just happened to us or yeah. to me. Um you know, between the guys that were standing around there that day, we had at least 80 years of hunting experience. And, you know, not one of us had ever considered something like this possible. Yeah. You know, we were all familiar with guns, comfortable with guns. You know, like I said earlier, I grew up hunting. And, um, you know, I, I knew gun safety. My dad taught me. That was the first thing he taught me growing up. And I practiced it every time I was in the field. But... You know, for for one reason or another, this just wasn't my day. You know, I didn't I didn't intentionally leave a shell in my gun. You know, I just I just forgot to double check it. And you know, there was only one shell in the gun. Strangely enough, it wasn't loaded to the brim. It was just one shell in the chamber. So anyway, seconds after the gun went off, you know, I glanced down and noticed about a coffee can size hole in the bed of the ranger um you know it was directly beside me and you know i didn't experience any pain right away so i didn't know if i had been shot or if i'd been hit or not you know mm-hmm. we, quickly we realized that you know the gun went off and so um i went to take a step back you know to kind of get a better look at my leg and see if i'd been hit and when i did that my my leg didn't move um you know suddenly the adrenaline rush just hit me like a freight train man like the most you know terrified i've ever been in my life you know something that in the back of my mind you know i had always considered something crazy you know like if you ever got shot and everybody thinks oh i don't want to get shot that would be terrible well it just happened to me like in the blink of an eye you know didn't see it coming and um you know i could tell really quickly that the injury was severe just by the way my body reacted to it you know what, what i try to tell people to explain it is it's like somebody stuck a vacuum to me and just like sucked 
90% of the energy out of my body in like an instant, like just immediately, boom, gone. Yeah. Um, so two of the guys that were there, they ran over to pick me up. You know, they knew I was shot by that point. Ran over to pick me up, and um, I could I could kind of feel almost paralyzed. Like I couldn't move really. I could move a little bit, but not much. But by that point, I had kind of calmed down. Like the initial shock hit me. My blood pressure dropped, and then it was like a strange calmness came over me. Like, all right, you know, I'm I'm shot now. Like that's not changing. Now, what am I got to do to survive? Mm-hmm. You know, survival mode just kind of kicked in on me. That's crazy. And, um, yeah, it, it was it was intense, man. But um, pretty quickly after they picked me up, they loaded me up in the Polaris Ranger. They sat me up in the front seat on the passenger side. And um, my vision just, like, completely went black. Like, I was blinded almost, like, instantly just gone. And, um, you know, I could still hear everything going on around me, and I could, you know, still communicate to them, you know, but uh, I could not see anything. It was it was very strange. And mm-hmm. then, um, so my cousin called 911, cranked up the ranger, and um, for some reason... I don't know why, and they can't tell me why either. They decided that they were going to drive me to the nearest highway versus back to our camp. You know, they could have thought, at the camp, they could have thought we had some medical supplies or, you know, something they could help me out with before the ambulance got there. But instead, they just said, we'll just go to the highway and um, we'll just meet the ambulance there. Um it's about, it were, from where we were, it was about the same distance to the camp and the highway. So, I mean, it's not like it was just an obvious choice. It's not like we were right beside the highway or anything. Yeah. So, um, for some reason, they chose to take me to the highway. And, you know, that was the first of, honestly, many reasons why I'm, I'm able to tell my story on your show today. But, um, so as we kind of got close to the highway, my vision started to come back to me. And, um, you know, just the memory that I have to this day, you know, what I saw, that was just kind of, like, it was scary, man. It was kind of spooky. Um, you know, it was, it was like a really dull gray morning, you know, and it just, I could just like feel like the presence of like this evil, just like there, you know, coming to get me like it was all around, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, my mind started wondering to my family, you know, um, and reality sunk in, I might not ever see them again. You know, I may never see my wife again. I may never see my, at the time, one-year-old son again, you know? And and having to sit there and think those thoughts all while I'm just, you know, struggling, fighting everything in me just to stay awake and breathe, you know, it's, it's unbelievable just the amount of emotional pain and, you know, fear that it, it still brings up in me today when I think back on it. You know, it's it's just one of those things that I'll never forget. Um, you know, being so close to losing something that I care about so much, you know, it, it just kind of makes me want to hold on to it that much tighter. You know, it's 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 a weird feeling that, you know, only really and truly only someone who's going through a near death experience like that can kind of truly understand. Um but uh Anyway, I was sitting there and then, you know, I had thoughts of, you know, every mistake, wrongdoing, 
you know, big ones, not every single one, but, you know, big ones I've done in my life were coming back to me, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, man, like, I'm, like, this is it. Like, I'm going to have to live with this forever. Mm-hmm. And, like, you, you, you think about, like, your relationship with God, and, like, did I believe, you know, and I'm a believer in Jesus Christ that he, you know, saved me, and, like, you, you worry and you think about all these things, and, you know, part of me thinks, you know, maybe that, that was a, a form of hell almost, you know, like, yeah. If, if I if I die and these are the thoughts that I'm left to think about for the remainder for the rest of eternity, you know, like that would be hell to me in a way, you know. So um, so I went in there and you know my friends we pulled up to the side of the highway and um, you know they were telling me that I was too tough to let a couple BBs you know kill me and you know they they didn't think the wound looked that bad but you know to their defense. They couldn't really see how bad it was just because I had on a pair of chest waders. And, you know, most of all the blood that I was losing was just pooling up in my chest waders. Yeah. So, um, so we were kind of just sitting there, you know, they were trying to, you know, keep me calm and, you know, put some pressure on my leg and stuff. And then um, the ambulance finally gets there. It was probably, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, something like that. Between the time I got shot to when the ambulance showed up, maybe a little bit longer. I, I, I'm really not aware of the timelines because okay. um, I was in and out, honestly. But um, anyway, the ambulance got there. They started to cut my waders off, and um, when they cut them, cut them down the seam, folded them over. They pulled my boot off, and blood just poured out of my boot like water out of a pitcher. And then my clothes, like everything, basically from the chest down, was just like stained like solid red like soaked like basically i had bled out by that time you know i was i was very close to to dying um at that point and um so anyway they stabilized me on the stretcher loaded me up in the ambulance i just remember like a faint like a bright white kind of looking light and then boom darkness like just black and um you know, that was the first time that uh, that I coded that day. Um, I coded for a total of probably 45 minutes that day. It was split up. So on the way to the hospital, I coded. I don't know the exact amount of time, but I coded on the way to the hospital. They got my pulse back. They wheeled me into the emergency room. I coded again. Um, and then they worked on me in the emergency room for you know, at least another 20, 25 minutes before they were able to get my pulse back for the second time. Um, you know, they said basically when, you know, they started to dig in my leg and, and try to stop the bleeding, you know, they said my my femoral artery looked like hamburger meat. Like, it was destroyed. Yeah, there's a lot they of blood going through like, there. Yeah, yeah it, I, I mean, anybody who's on this that has anything to do with movement or watches movies, I guess, really, everyone knows how important some art is. Yeah. It is, like, you will bleed out in minutes if it gets disrupted in any way. And um, mine was destroyed. It was obliterated. And um, so anyway, they, they worked on me, got my pulse back, stabilized me well enough so I could be airlifted to uh, the Jackson, Mississippi uh, Trauma Center. They have a huge hospital in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, they thought that they could take better care of me over there. So loaded me up on a helicopter. It was a super expensive helicopter ride. And I'm kind of mad about it because I 
don't have any memory of it. You know, <laughs> everybody thinks it'd be cool to find a helicopter. Well, I did, and I don't even remember it, and it cost me twenty thousand. Yeah, you paid a lot of money for that <laughs> ride. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like I don't even get to get a video of it or nothing. Like I was kind of <laughs> mad when I woke up. You know. <laughs> anyway, I you know I can joke about this. You know, I'm to the point in my life now where I can kind of joke about it a little bit. But right. uh, anyway, so that's that's kind of the, like the accident, like how it happened, when it happened, and kind of what happened right after that. Well, in the Jackson Hospital, um, I was in a coma, knocked out, basically a medical-induced coma for 12 days. Um, I have, yes, 12 days, like, I have no memory at all of these 12 days. During that time, I had 10 major surgeries where they amputated my leg. Because, see, my wound was so bad, like at, at Vicksburg, when they went in and tried to stop the bleeding, they'd patch a spot, and then boom, another spot would spring up. they patch it, boom, another spot would spring up. They said it was like, it was like somebody just like, holes all in a water hose and like they could not stop it you know it just kept pulling up so what they wound up doing was just basically cutting off all blood flow to my left leg just so they could pump enough blood in me to keep my heart beating well mm -hmm. by the time i got to jackson by the time you know they went over all the procedures and did, did all that my left leg was basically dead it was gone you know so they had to end up cutting it cutting it off amputating it um and, and they had to do it in like three or four different surgeries. And it took, you know, a little bit of time because they kept finding more dead tissue, more stuff. So they kept cutting me higher and higher and higher until there was nothing else left to cut on my leg. So basically now, you know, I have zero remnants of a left leg. I have nothing. Um, and, you know, also to keep me alive, they gave me over 300 blood transfusions yeah. and anybody in the medical world like knows that is a lot of blood like mm -hmm. basically just kind of rough math that's like every drop of blood in like 35 to 40 full-grown adults that's how much blood they had to pump through my body to keep me alive during those 12 days and in the hospital in Vicksburg when I was there for a short time but um it's un unreal you know, it was just unreal, the, the medical impracticalities, I guess. You know, a lot of the doctors were even calling it a miracle. You know, they said, what happened to you and that you survived is essentially medically impossible. You know, we've never seen anybody with an injury like yours that survived. And not only did I survive, but when I woke up, you know, I was mentally sharp. Like, I had lost, I had lost zero memories throughout my entire life through all of this. The only thing that's blank is the 12 days that I was in a coma. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, everything about me. Like, I remembered everybody's names. I remembered my phone numbers. I, I mean, everything. And they were just in awe that, like, I did not have any brain damage due to lack of blood and oxygen. Because, you know, when I bled out, they had no idea how long my brain had gone without blood and oxygen. And, you know, any amount of time that your brain's cut off like that is detrimental, typically. You know, mm -hmm. you just start losing it by the second. And, um, you know, they had no idea how long I'd been out. And, um, you know, they just couldn't believe that I woke up and I was like, 
hundred percent with it, you know. Now obviously I was gonna talk on the drugs when I woke up, like I was saying some off the wall stuff and you know, it was, it was pretty hilarious, you know, my family was actually kind of laughing at me a lot during that time because I'm I'm kind of a character, I guess when I get uh when I get some chemicals in me and um, they were they were fully entertained by me for the next couple of weeks when I was in the hospital. But um you know, and when I woke up, the crazy thing is, you know, due to phantom pain, also, let me let me go back a little bit. When I was in a coma for 12 days, I had, like, the strangest, craziest, most vivid dreams, like, I've ever had in my life. I mean, I had dreams, you know, most every night, but, not, I mean, I might remember one little thing that might have happened in my dream, but these dreams that I had when I was in a coma, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Um, you know, and I still remember them in detail to this day. And like, I was convinced after I woke up that like those dreams had actually happened because they were so vivid. You know, it took my family like a week to convince me that I was actually had been laying there in that hospital bed for the last two weeks. And those were all just dreams I was having. So when I woke up, I thought I still had my leg. And because of the dreams and also because of phantom pain, um, and phantom pain is basically anybody who loses a limb uh, due to amputation. What what they call phantom pain is where your brain still thinks that limb is there. So you still have feeling. Like to this day, I can still feel my left leg even though it's gone. Yeah. Um, you know, your brain like plays a trick on you. Like, okay, there was a leg there. It didn't just disappear, you know. It's still there. We're just trying to find it. So it's steadily sending signals down there. And your nerve endings are sending signals back up. Like, we're not finding anything. Like, what's going on? So it's almost like a painful type um, sensation. Yeah. And um, and so, like, it feels like you literally have a leg. So when I woke up, like, I was having these phantom pains. And I was like, man, somebody please, like, rub my leg. or rub my left leg. Like, that thing's itching or, like, it's burning. Like, somebody scratch it. And I just kept begging everybody. And they just kept giving me these blank stares. Like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. No, nothing like, right. I was like, <laughs> I was like, you'll scratch my right leg. But why won't you touch my left leg? Like, what's going on, you know? Until finally... You know, my dad came in the room and he was like, so on, he was like, they had to amputate your leg so, you know, they could save your life. And I was like, what? He was like, yeah. And he had tears in his eyes, you know, he was telling me. And, um, you know, I was just sitting there and like, just totally caught off guard. Like, oh my gosh, like, my leg is gone? Like, what am I going to do now? Like, I don't. Like, I don't know anything about being an amputee. Like, I don't even know an amputee. Like, what is my life going to be like? And I sit there, and I thought about it for a minute, and I was like, hmm. So I looked up at my dad, and I said, okay, well, please go get me some mac and cheese or something, man. Like, I'm dying over here. Like, um, 12 days without mac and cheese, so. <laughs> yeah, immediately he smiled. He was like, okay, he's going to be all right, you know. You know, I, it wasn't it wasn't just like me being tough or anything. You know, pain meds definitely had something to do with my response there. But um, but anyway, you know, in a nutshell, that's kind of how I treated this. Like, you know, it is what it is, and you know, I've got a life to live. I got to keep on living it. You know, I've got a, a little boy who looks up to me. I've mm-hmm. got a baby girl on the way. I've got a wife who depends on me. You know, to support our family. 
um, had a job. So, uh, you know, that's that's just kind of how I treated this whole process the whole time. Like, just keep just keep waking up and keep moving forward. And you know, you never know what what God's going to bring you tomorrow. So, you know, you better wake up and 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 see what it's going to be. You know, that's kind of uh, that's kind of been my motto going through all this. And you know, it's not easy. I, I'll be the first to tell you. There's many days where I wake up and I'm like, man, this freaking sucks. Like, oh my gosh, like why did this happen to me? And I go down this rabbit hole of why these and why this and why that. And at the end of the day, I will tell you that doesn't do anything for you. You know, it does not change your reality. It just changes your mindset for the worse. And if you're going to be strong and go through something like this, the one thing you've got to have is a strong mindset. And, you know, I've, I've tried all kinds of different methods, all kinds of different things, but I'll be the first to tell you the number one thing that's helped me through this is just trusting that God has a plan for this, you know, in my life, that he's going to take care of me. You know, I have many questions for him, believe me, but, um, you know, I just kind of trust that he knows what's best for me and my future, even though I may not. You know, he's he's like my daddy. I'm like a child. You know, it's just like I tell my son all the time. He asks me, well, can I have this candy? Can I have this toy? And I'm like, no, you can't. You know, he doesn't understand why, yeah. but I do. I'm like, man, that candy's going to make you fat. You know, you can't keep eating all that. <laughs> you know, that toy's going to waste your time. Like, you don't want to play with that. You know, he doesn't get it, but I do. And that's kind of how I look at my relationship with God, you know. It's just, it's hard to do. It's a lot easier said than done. I kind of make it sound easy by talking about it. But, uh, you know, that's that's the best way I know how to go about this, basically. Yeah, man, that's that's incredible that you're able to have that, that kind of mentality and that kind of positivity, like, during the struggle and, you know, during the whole, the whole event. Because, I mean, there are so many people that you hear about that, you know, they'll face similar things. They'll face things that, you know, really, really bring them down physically. And then of course that's going to affect them mentally and emotionally. And it just, they spiral down to the point to where they really can't recover. And the fact that you're able to, you know, stay positive during the struggle is just, it's just, it's just incredible. Really. That's what I've, that's, what's really intrigued me about your story is just here, the mentality that you've had me, that you've had, you know, throughout this, this whole process. I mean, you know, this is, a year and a half into this. And I mean, you, you've already, you know, you've come to grips, you've come to come to know that, and you come to put your trust into God that this is, you know, this is your life now. And, you know, and just the, just the fact that you've surrendered, you know, your story over to him and say, God, you know, whatever you do with this, go for it. It's just, it's just absolutely yep. incredible. That's, that's awesome. I mean, that's the best way I know how to do it. You know, it's, I, like I said, I've tried other methods, I've tried other things, and, and this is by far the best. And, you know, I want I want to make sure everybody understands, like, you know, this is my story, this is what happened to me. But honestly, like, my, the way I look at this can be said for everybody on the earth. You know, no matter what, you know, everybody goes through trials and tribulations. Everybody has difficult days, difficult times, difficult periods in their life. And, um, you know, this, this advice isn't just for me. It's, it's for, honestly, anybody out there you mm -hmm. know, who's willing to take it. And it, it's free for the taking, you know. 
God doesn't ask for anything in return from us. He just wants us to trust him and believe that, you know, he is the almighty and sent his son Jesus here to die on the cross to forgive us of our sins. Like that's all we have to do. Like it's pretty easy. Like most things, most people out there asking for something, like they want an arm and a leg. And, you know, I tell them like, look, I only got one leg. You know, you can't have that. So, you know, I can't really buy into all these other people's stuff. So, um, you know, but God, he doesn't ask for that. You know, he just asks for our heart and, you know, asks us to trust him. And that's, that's it, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I th- and I think using that, you know, as your platform is just having a, you know, I know it's had an impact on me and, you know, how I view, view my life over the past few days, just kind of researching your story. And I know it's had it going to have an impact on other people that listen to this. And it's going to have an impact on people that you, you've already talked to, you know, and shared your story with. And, but, my, uh, I, I really wanted to see what your your friends that were there that saw everything happen and you know kind of seeing the way you're living now. What are what are some of their perspectives on it? Well, I mean, what kind of impact has it had on on the ones that were with you when it went down and you know are of course still I'm assuming are still with you today. Yeah. So um, yeah, the, the three other guys I had with me, my brother was there too, but he wasn't actually. Um, around the ranger when, the, when it happened, he was actually a couple, couple, several hundred yards down the uh, slough that we were hunting. He was still hunting, so he wasn't actually there around. He was with us that day. Um, but, but no, I mean it's it's changed their life too. You know, this is something that's going to be with them for forever. You know, they're never going to forget what happened to me that day. You know, they were firsthand witnesses, and uh, you know, I, I'd say it's definitely probably made them realize that you know life is short it can be taken from you in a second you know and you never see it coming and i I also i guarantee you it has caused them to be more cautious while they're out in the field hunting um Mm -hmm. you know it definitely has done that and they've told me that for sure you know it's definitely kind of changed the way they look at things and you know like i've been out hunting and stuff since this happened too like i didn't give up on hunting you know i don't i want to be clear I don't blame this on hunting. I don't blame this on guns. You know, I don't even blame it on the dog that made my gun go off. You know, this was my fault. You know, I left a shell in it. I didn't mean to leave it in there. I didn't do it on purpose, but I did. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I take the full blame for what happened to me. But, um, you know, it still doesn't change the fact that, that I still enjoy the outdoors and I still enjoy hunting. Um, it's just It's just a different process for me now. You know, I got to look at I got to look at doing things a little bit different. I can talk about that in a little bit more detail. Yeah, absolutely, man. That's that's awesome. So, but yeah, uh, you know, you kind of mentioned how you kind of kind of reprioritize, you know, gun safety and that kind of thing and hunting safety. And I mean, moving forward, you know, with this this past hunting season and that kind of thing, what kind of challenges and that kind of stuff did you did did you kind of have to overcome? in order to get back out there, especially on that first hunt and, you know, having the, the new, the new thought, I guess, of, of gun safety and hunting safety, you know, in the back of your mind. Yeah. So yeah, hunting is very different for me now. Um, not, and it's not just hunting, it's just life in general. You know, every, every day is like, it was like I was born again and then it happened and I just had to like relearn how to do everything in my life. Like literally everything, you know, wake up, go to sleep, work, you know, walk, um, 
cook, hunt, stand, sit, go to the bathroom, you name it. Like, everything in my life has, like, had to reach that button, and I've got to relearn how to do it all. Um, so, basically, I'll just kind of share the hunting part with y'all. But, um, so, hunting is a challenge. Um, it's not easy. I do have a prosthetic leg that I use. Uh, for most of my everyday stuff, like if I'm working or if I go room errands and things like that, um, you know, I, I have my prosthetic leg on. It's just with my leg, it has a lot of limitations because of my amputation being so high up. You know, my, my prosthetic has to replace three working joints, my hip, my knee, and my ankle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with that, you know, losing three weight-bearing joints is extremely extremely difficult to overcome and most people um that do have my type same invitation um they, they never use a prosthetic because it's just too difficult you know the prosthetic has so many limitations um you know going uphill going downhill is very difficult using stairs just walking is hard you know it took me a while just to get used to walking um and then like walking in the mud or walking in water like it's impossible. You can't do it, really, you know. Um, so I, I have had to change, you know, my hunting strategy up a little bit. And, and typically what I hunt, I'm using forearm crutches. I don't wear my prosthetic when I go hunting just because of the number of limitations that it has. But, um, you know, on my forearm crutches, I can do just about anything I want to. You know, the, the limitation of using my crutches is I don't have my hands free to kind of do stuff. So that's why I like to wear my leg if I'm working and stuff. You know, you can just kind of live more of a normal life on a prosthetic, a normal day-to-day. But if you're going to do anything active, forearm crutches are the way to go. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I can I can hike miles and miles. I can go up mountains. I can climb trees. You know, I've, I've gotten myself in good enough shape where, you know, I can still do you know, a lot of things outdoors that I was doing before. Um, I've just kind of had to come up with new ways to do it. And a lot of trial and error has gone into it. Um, but, you know, the, the act of actually going to the stand, getting up in the stand, making the shot, like all that's pretty easy. Like that's not really that difficult. Now the prop, the challenge is the act of recovery and dressing a deer, you know, yeah, that's pretty tough. <laughs> that is like, a pretty physical event trying crutches. to do that. Yeah, like I mean, drag anybody's ever dragged a deer through the woods, like that is a heck of a workout, yeah. you know. And um, doing it on forearm crutches, man, basically you better just call somebody to come do it for you, you know. <laughs> and I'm lucky that I have you know plenty of family and friends that are more than willing to help me out in that department. Um, you know, I did actually kill a deer in Texas this year, and I loaded him up by myself, um, which everybody at the camp thought I was nuts. I was like, man, look, I was like, nobody would answer my phone call. I was like, I had to do something. I was like, I ain't got time to wait on y'all. So I, I figured out a way to do it myself. And, um, and but thank, thankfully, thankfully, it was a Texas whitetail. Uh, Hill Country, Texas whitetail, to be exact. And those deer are only like 150 pounds of yeah. the mature ducks. So they're not quite as big. Now, these big swamp donkeys we have here in Louisiana, um, you know, dragging a 250-pound mature buck through the woods and loading them up on a four-wheeler with one leg, 
No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, just drag <laughs> it behind it. <laughs> yeah, if somebody can do that, I'd love to see them. You know, I'd love to see who it is because I'm a big guy. And, um, you know, I've gotten myself in really good shape uh, since all this happened just because being in shape for me now is super important. You know, it's important for everybody, but for me, it's super important because it just makes my life that much easier, you know. But, um, so yeah, that's kind of, you know, how I've struggled through my hunting season this past year. And, and it's, it's like anything else, you know, it's going to take some time to, you know, figure out the best method or figure out the best way to go about stuff. And, you know, it's, it's like, like I said, I got to relearn how to do everything all over again. You know, it's kind of like I'd never hunted before when I went back out for the first time after this happened to me. So it's been a little, a little difficult, but it's honestly kind of been fun. You know, I felt like I had hunting pretty much figured out beforehand, you know, when I was uh, standing up riding two legs. And, and now it's like, man, I don't have any of this figured out. Like, I've got to start over. And, yeah. You know, it's kind of giving me something to think about, something to help take my mind off my struggles, you know. Like, all right, well, I can, I'm not going to come up in the tree if I do it this way. Or I can I can get my bow to, to the ground blind if I do it this way. Or, you know, it's like, it, it's been, uh, it's been kind of fun. I'll, I'll be honest with that. Yeah, that's still, I still think it's crazy that you're able to have such, you know, positivity, you know, through this whole, this whole time and just through this whole struggle and everything. That's, that's awesome that you're able to get back out and you're able to have some successes as far as being able to put some, uh, some food on the ground and some food in the freezer. That's awesome that you're able to get that. And, and that's, that's, that's really cool. Yeah, man, yeah, and food in the freezer, I think people are going to have a whole new appreciation for having food in the freezer after this coronavirus outbreak. Oh, yeah, you know? absolutely. I've had, I'm, I've heard, like, I listen to the Joe Rogan podcast sometimes, and mm-hmm. he's been saying on there, like, he's like, man, I'm getting all kinds of people calling me, like, how do I start hunting? Like, yeah. I need food, like, what am I going to do? And, you know, I think after going through this, people are going to have a whole new appreciation for those guys that will get out there and work and, you know, put, put food in the freezer, um, on their own hands. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think that's this, uh, a whole event, you know, especially there for a long time in grocery stores, like there was almost no meat available. So, yeah. I mean, the, the people who had the meat were the ones that were out hunting. And I think it made a lot of people realize like there might be something to this to actually go out and harvest <laughs> exactly. their own meat. And maybe we should start, uh, yeah. investing some time and money into learning how to do it. And Joe Rogan, yeah, you maybe. mentioned him and, you know, he's been one of the biggest advocates. He's, I mean, just just nationally and really internationally for people, you know, harvesting their own meat, being a hunter and learning how to yeah. shoot a bow and that kind of thing. It's been really cool watching uh, his journey over the past, I guess, been six or seven years or so, you know, learning yeah. from, you know, guys like Cam Haynes and Steve Ronella and those, all those kind of kind of guys, John Dudley. It's, it's been pretty cool. Hey, yeah, they've done a lot for hunting, you know, they've, it kind of opened some people's eyes. They got some different fan bases out there that aren't typically the ones uh, who are out there doing it. You know, they think it's just a bunch of dumb rednecks yeah. that are out there hunting and, and doing stuff. But, uh, but no, there's, there's definitely more to it than um, just the act of killing an animal. You know, it's it's providing for your family. It's providing for yourself. And it's knowing where your food comes from. You know, and yeah. most people are not in tune with that. You know, I work in the ag industry, and, you know, every day you can find somebody griping about, oh, this is not organic, this is this, this is that, yada, yada, yada. You can go on for days. Mm-hmm. But, 
know, the fact is, people literally just think that the food just shows up at the grocery store. Like, nobody worked for it. Nobody did anything. It just shows up there. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's 100% false, you know. Say what you want about, about you know, big ag, but it is important. And I think, you know, going through this coronavirus has, uh, has kind of, you know, shine some light on that and maybe open some people's eyes around that whole topic of discussion. I think it has. And, you know, there's nothing that will, you know, straighten out your mentality on and give you an appreciation for the, for things around you, especially people who are in the food in, in industry, than to take away the food. <laughs> like once the food is gone, I mean, you you really start to prioritize what's what's important for you. And like, what do we need to do to, to get this? Because, I mean, I think yeah. we're just so, as a society, we're just so, um, like you were mentioning a minute ago, like we're just so used to having all these things where we can just walk into the grocery store, you know, spend $15 and take it home and cook it and eat it. Or heck, we may not even have to yeah. cook it. It may already be cooked for us. We're just so conditioned yeah, to that, to that mentality that we just don't know where our, our food comes from, you know, as a society. And that's really, really a big motivator for the Rice Kill Eat podcast and really just hunters in general is just to kind of share with people like, like these, this backstrap that I'm eating right here on my plate, like it was walking around in the woods two days ago. <laughs> like it, this it was, was the not. Same as that steak that you bought from the store. Exactly, you know, yeah. That was walking around in a pasture yeah. or on a farm somewhere, you know, a few, few weeks ago or whatever the timeline would be. But, you know, it's no different. You know, but I like I like how Joe Rogan puts it. He says, you know, if you're buying meat from a grocery store, you're basically just hiring a hitman to do all your bidding for you. <laughs> that's you know, and that is, 100%, that is a great way to look at it because that's what it is. You know, the hunters, we're not hiring anybody to go out and kill our animals for us. We're doing it ourselves, you know. And, um, you know, I love when he says that because I'm like, man, that is, that is 100% correct. That is dead on, you know. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. So what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of things have you done with your – with your son and you know your soon-to-be little girl in order to show them you know show them well show your son like here's here's what we're eating you know and that kind of thing and i know with my kids well anytime that we have you know some some duck or we have some turkey or we have some uh deer something that i've shot and we were eating it for dinner i try to make sure that they know like this is, you know, that, that turkey I brought home and you helped me cut up, like, this is it right here. This is what we're having for dinner tonight. And I think, you know, kids, they, they naturally are interested in that kind of thing. They want to know where yeah. their food comes from. And I've seen that with my own kids and I've seen that with, with other, other people's kids and stuff, but they're, they want to know, like, what am I eating? You know, where did it come from? How did they get here? And that kind of thing. And so, I mean, what kind of things have you done, you know, being a dad and being somebody who's being an example for your kid to show them, you know, what, where yeah. your food comes from. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm still a young dad. I'm, I'm still kind of into, you know, chicken nugget. And oh yeah. Mac and cheese <laughs> phase with my, with my kids. But I, but no, you're hundred percent right, man. I, I do have plans of, you know, showing them the amount of work that it takes to, you know, put food on the table and, you know, where your food comes from. And, you know, just because we're out here doing it ourselves, 
and it was no different than the people in the grocery store buying it, you know, get somebody else to do it for them. You know, this is the same process. It, it's the exact same, no matter if we do it or if we get it from the grocery store. The same things take place in order for it to get on our plate, in our yeah. kitchen, and our, in our, at our table, you know. So uh, I definitely have plans of, of sharing that process with them. And um, I, I think you're 100% right. You know, we need to start our kids off early and teach them, you know, the amount of work and, and you know, where things actually come from. And, you know, like, like my son, I put it this way, um, it's funny because every time the UPS driver or the mailman comes, like, he gets so excited. He's like, oh, oh, the postman, the postman's here. Like, he thinks he's Santa Claus or something because, you know, what's he doing? He's dropping off Amazon boxes that a lot of them have toys for him in it. So, like, yeah. he thinks the postman brings it all to him. And we're like, no, like, we actually bought that for you, you know? Like, <laughs> it's not the postman. Like, give us some credit. He's, get, he's getting all the credit for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know, so... We de- I definitely have plans to, you know, teach my children those those attributes of life and, you know, just kind of where things come from, for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. There's nothing that motivates you more than, you know, having kids and having a wife that relies on you. And I know that's something that you've discussed up to this point. And, you know, really just with your wife in general and with, you know, life going forward, that's, you know, that's something that I'm sure is going to continue to be a motivator and, I know it continues, and hopefully it's a motivator for, for all dads, but it's it's something that is going to be unique, you know, of course, in, in your scenario, and that's that's awesome. But man, I've got a, yeah. I got a couple more questions here before we kind of close out here, but my first one, this this first one is one that all my listeners, they're, they're familiar with. This is something I ask all my guests at the end of kind of our conversation, and it's something that I love hearing. You know, my guests, I love hearing their, their answer to this question because they, they're, they're kind of all over the place, but they're always, you know, great. So my question for you is, what does hunting mean to you? Yeah, so, uh, you know, hunting, you know, we've, we've kind of discussed a lot of what hunting means to me, but, you know, it's, it's about connection. It's about relationships, you know, on top of some of the things we've already talked about, you know. When I'm when I'm out hunting, I'm wanting to share that experience with somebody else. You know, it's to me that's that's one of the biggest things. You know, hunters we are not the or the majority by any means. We are a very small minority, and if we want to continue doing what we love, you know, we have to introduce more people into the outdoors. And, you know, maybe maybe this coronavirus will help you know, kind of wake people up a little bit, like we've been talking about, and, and be more curious and ask questions. But, um, you know, we've got to spread the word out there to to those people that are against us and, and show them, like, you know, look, we're, we're trying to do this the right way. You know, there are people out there that make mistakes. We all make mistakes in life. But, you know, in, in the end, you know, there's, there's good behind this. You know, like we're doing something that our ancestors – did you know thousands of years ago and you know we're just continuing that tradition and um in our way of doing it you know now in, in the 21st century um but but you know I, I guess i do want to kind of talk about this too you know hunting before uh december 28th when all this happened to me you know hunting was something that i was extremely passionate about and um you know i always dreamed of you know, going, traveling the world or at least the country and, 
you know, harvesting these, all these animals on my bucket list. And, you know, that was a lot of what my free time and my thoughts revolved around. But, um, you know, going through this has changed that. Um, you know, one thing that I like to share with people is when you're taking your last dying breaths on earth, you know, all these material things in life are not running through your head at all. You know, you're not thinking, um, I wish I had a bigger house or I wish I had a, you know, I wish I could get that new truck I just saw in the, in the lot or, you know, man, man, I, my, my buddy over here, he just seems like he has a way better job than I do. You know, I, I wish, I wish I had his job or somebody else's job. And, you know, those things aren't going through your head in your last dying breaths here on earth. And if they don't matter at the very end of your life, why do we put so much weight onto all this while we're living, you know, while we're actually mm-hmm. here living life, you know? And and that's something that I got caught up in before all this happened to me. And, and I still get caught up in it from time to time. But, you know, I'd find myself wishing, man, you know, I'd, I'd be hating on somebody because they had a better place to hunt. And I'd be like, oh, your place doesn't count, you know? And it's like almost I was competing with them. But then deep down, I was just, you know, jealous. Yeah. And I feel like hunters, a lot of times, we, we kind of get in that track where we're like, oh, you shot that dude with a crossbow, that doesn't count, you know? Or, oh, you, you shot him with a rifle at 250 yards, you know? I, I shot mine with a bow at, at 15 steps, you know? I'm a way better hunter than you. Like, we get stuck in that sometimes. And, you know, I, I understand that I do, but I just want people to realize, like, when you are literally breathing your last breath like none of that goes through your head you're not thinking you know you wish you had bigger horns on the wall or you wish you would have shot that deer with a bow instead of your rifle or whatever you know you're thinking about your family and your relationship with god and you know what does god ask us to do he asks us first and foremost to treat others as we would like to be treated mm-hmm. and a lot of times hunters we kind of get stuck up and what I just explained, you know, the I'm better than you attitude. And, you know, that's not what God asked us to do. You know, if we would all just learn to work together, collaborate with each other, and figure out how we can get more people involved in the sport that we love so much, you know, we would all be a lot better off. Man, that was such wisdom. Holy cow, that was, that was awesome, man. I appreciate that. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're 100% right, though. I mean, that's... That's awesome. I definitely appreciate that. And I can definitely relate to that. And man, that was, that was great. So Matt, I don't want to, I don't want to go into anything else here because I think that's a great way to stop because <laughs> I'm not sure if I can top that or anything, if I can even add anything to that. Cause you just, you, you killed everything in that one. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do want to uh, give you an opportunity just to kind of tell listeners where people can connect with you, with everything that you're doing. Um, just kind of, you know, where, where are you on social media? What, what are ways that people can, can kind of connect with you and hear more of your story and kind of get in into more of Matt Branch? Yeah. So, uh, I'm on, I'm on all the social media networks. Um, I'm probably most active on like Instagram and Facebook. I do have a Twitter account, but I really don't get on there very much, but, um, you know, Instagram, I've got, a. My handle is at M underscore C underscore branch, MC branch. And um, Facebook is just, just Matt Branch. But yeah, no, if anybody's interested in hearing more, or, you know, has any questions for me, 
you know, I've, I've, I check my social media. I'm not the best at, you know, getting on there and, and being on it nonstop. Um, but I do check it from time to time. So if anybody has questions or wants to reach out, feel free. Uh, Instagram, Facebook is the best way to do it. So that's it, man. That's awesome. I'll make sure I put those in the show notes. That way everybody can kind of just click on that link and it'll take them right to it, man. But man, I appreciate you being open. I appreciate you being, you know, vulnerable with your story today and kind of sharing the details, the nitty gritties of, of your story. And I just thank you for the encouragement and, you know, the positivity that you keep putting out there. And I'm glad that we were able to connect because I mean, just your mentality on how you, how you view life is just something that's encouraging for me. And I know it's going to be encouraging for other people. So I appreciate you being on the Rise Killy podcast with me. Yeah, Tyler, anytime, man. Anytime. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right, man.